Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, following the death of Elijah McClain, one lawmaker is pushing to ban or rein in paramedics' use of ketamine. It's not a sci-fi novel or something where someone is, you know, putting uh, something over someone's mouth and gently leading them back. We'll also visit a church in Aurora where local leaders are trying to address disparities in vaccine distribution. Those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Ketamine is a powerful drug that, when used correctly, is a reliable anesthetic. It's used by doctors in hospitals. But KUNC has found out that it's also being administered by paramedics on the streets during run-ins with police. They've sedated hundreds of people labeled with excited delirium, and dozens have had bad reactions. Now a Colorado lawmaker says she'll either push to rein in its use in this way or ban the practice altogether. As KUNC's Michael DeUana reports, it's in response to the death of Elijah McLean and the findings from our investigations last year. The alleyways of Denver's River North neighborhood are an explosion of color. Expressions of joy, love, and social awareness are painted across the brick walls. I'm here searching for a particular mural. So we were looking around for it, and uh, I was thinking the same He's thing. On the other side of this building. That's Elijah McKnight. We're also joined by Jeremiah Axtell as we try to find a portrait of Elijah McLean, the young black man who died in 2019 after police stopped him in Aurora for looking sketchy. Axtell says what happened to McLean makes him stop and think about what's right and what's wrong. But you know what, I I think that's better than what they think about. They being the police officers and others accused of killing McLean in a lawsuit filed by his family. Axtell, who is white, and McKnight, who is multiracial and identifies as black, feel a connection to McLean. Both were in confrontations with officers, and like McLean, they were in handcuffs when paramedics sedated them with ketamine. Now, they're friends. He hit me up on uh, Facebook. He's like, yeah, they got me too. I didn't know nothing. He'd been through it for a little bit, and we hooked up. Last summer, KUNC told the stories of McLean, McKnight, and Extel. Our investigations revealed that paramedics used ketamine 902 times to sedate people across the state in two and a half years. They're allowed to do this if a person shows signs of excited delirium. People with the condition are so out of control, they can display incredible strength and get so worked up that they could die. There's one organization that considers it an actual medical term, but there's several other medical organizations that don't. The American College of Emergency Physicians has recognized the condition for about a decade, but the American Psychiatric Association does not. 
While doctors continue to debate the diagnosis, excited delirium is considered extremely rare. And like the family of Elijah McLean, both McKnight and Axtell argue in lawsuits that they were not experiencing the condition and that they were wrongfully sedated. And now, state Democratic lawmaker Leslie Herod wants things to change. What we're seeing about the use of ketamine in the field is that they are not utilizing the appropriate medical protocols before administering the drug. And that is why we're seeing the adverse effects, and that is what needs to stop. Herod plans to offer lawmakers a choice, a total ban on paramedics' use of ketamine or a measure that would put restrictions on when and how paramedics can sedate a person, not just with ketamine, but any drugs. When we're talking about these um, sedatives that are used to restrain people, so we call them chemical restraints, not a video game. It's not a sci-fi novel or something where someone is, you know, putting uh, something over someone's mouth and gently leading them back. It is a, a harmful, very violent drug that can kill people. Though an autopsy was inconclusive, it could not rule out that ketamine might have played a role in McLean's death. His family and experts have questioned the dosage McLean was given, saying it was too high, based on a medic's estimation of his weight. Herod's bill could require paramedics to weigh a person before sedating them. If you administer the drug outside of the, these you know, safe ways and this safety protocol, um, then you will be committing a, a, a criminal offense. Why are we limiting the tools for them uh, to help a person out? But some have qualms, including Republican Senator John Cook of Weld County, who said it would be impossible for paramedics to weigh people. He also worries legislation could hamper paramedics and police officers. Because in the long run, that's what they're trying to do, is to help the person out. Cook is a former sheriff. Last year, during Black Lives Matter protests in Denver, he supported Herod's package of criminal justice reforms, Senate Bill 217, that went on to become law. But Cook isn't sure if he's on board with this effort. I think by banning or um, limiting, it, ca it could cause further harm to the person. Because let's face it, if the person is that excited and has that much delirium, um, you're not going to be able to control them, and they might increase the use of force on the officer or the deputy or the paramedics. And the more they escalate, the more law enforcement might have to escalate. But administering ketamine outside of a hospital setting comes with risks. Of the 902 cases we found in our prior investigations, complications arose almost 17 percent of the time. The most common was hypoxia, a potentially life-threatening lack of oxygen. This is where it gets into um, um, some difficult uh, areas. Dr. Randall Clark is with the Colorado Society of Anesthesiologists. There may be circumstances in the field where the use of a sedative agent is appropriate. If an individual is an immediate threat to themselves or others, 
uh, the use of a sedating agent might be preferable to other options. Clark said there are times when people might be experiencing delirium and sedating them may save their lives. But he also sees the need for greater public accountability on the doctors that oversee ketamine waivers and said there should be more criteria on the paramedics that ultimately administer the drug. But it needs to be a rare occurrence and it needs to be done under strict criteria and it needs to be done in a way that um, uh, maximizes the safety of the individual receiving those agents. And what we have seen in Colorado, and specifically because of a lot of your reporting, is that this has become a relatively frequent occurrence. A retired emergency physician from Ohio, Dr. Mark DeBard, who helped define excited delirium and ways to treat it about a decade ago, was stunned by our findings last year. Based on his calculations, he expected to see just 57 cases compared to the 902 we found. Back in the alleyway. Nine months went by where nobody knew anything about Elijah McClain. And then all these Black Lives Matter protests started happening. Both Elijah McKnight and Jeremiah Axtell say they have lingering psychological trauma from their sedations, respectively, in Arapahoe County and Lakewood. You know, waking up paranoid, um, sweating, uh, freaking out for no reason, having panic attacks. McKnight was hospitalized for days after his sedation in 2019. He'd like Herod to ban ketamine sedations. So would Axtell. Totally eliminate this act or, or any kind of forcible injection. I don't know. I wish they did this years ago so, so this never happened. Maybe if they had, he says, Elijah McLean would still be alive. Our search for McLean's mural ends in disappointment. They actually covered up the mural. We find the place where it should be, the back wall of a brewing company. Elijah was right there. Yeah, that was a lot of plan. We find out later that the mural was covered by new art months ago. Michael DeOanna, KUNC. And as Michael mentioned in that story, the interest in this issue from lawmakers in part stems from reporting KUNC did on ketamine in 2020, all of which you can go and find at our website, KUNC.org. Colorado is making progress vaccinating residents against COVID-19. As of this week, almost one million people have received at least one dose. But the distribution has been far from equal. Vaccination rates in Black and Hispanic communities lag well below their share of the total population. KUNC's Bloom recently visited a church in Aurora where local leaders are trying to close that gap. The cafeteria at St. Mary's Ethiopian Orthodox Church is buzzing with activity. It's been transformed into a pop-up vaccine clinic for immigrant and refugee residents, including Magersa Ide. Yeah, I'm very happy. Ide says he was shocked when a few weeks ago his church announced it would become a vaccination site for about 300 people. Yeah. And I appreciate the, uh, you know, the government for trying to help the community. Most of the people over here, they can't get that opportunity. Black and African-Americans, like Ide, make up roughly 4% of Colorado's population. But so far, they've only received about 2% of its vaccine doses. 
I saw that, I, I was very concerned. Democratic State Representative Nequeta Ricks organized the church clinic along with the state's health department. It's one of many so-called equity clinics happening across the Front Range. Because, as you know, black and brown communities have been disproportionately impacted by this uh, virus, you know, in higher numbers than, you know, our white residents. So it's important that we get it. She picked St. Mary's because the people here trust it. One of the biggest reasons COVID-19 vaccination rates are lower in communities of color is because there's a lot of distrust of the medical field. There's cultural reasons, there's religious reasons, um, there's reasons from people having trauma. You've heard about the Tuskegee experiments that happened on people of, of black people that went on for a while. And so you hear all of these things. You hear rumors about, you know, Bill Gates and, you know, population extermination. I mean, there's so many different rumors that are out here. So people internalize that stuff and they just don't really know how the vaccine is going to impact them. So there's a lot of hesitancy. So opening a clinic in a familiar place helps mitigate those fears, Rick says. Inside St. Mary's Sanctuary, a group of priests are discussing how they feel after receiving their shots. It's like uh, a regular flu vaccination. I didn't feel anything. Johannes Faye says the pandemic has hit his congregation hard. A lot of people have gotten sick, and a few have died. He wanted to get vaccinated to encourage others to do the same. It's good for, good for the community. It's good for the country. It is good for a lot of uh, uh, people's health. So we cannot, we don't have to transmit this uh, disease to one to another and um, hopefully get back uh, to normal. So uh, I will uh, advocate as, uh, as much as I can. For almost a year now, St. Mary's has only allowed about 50 people to worship in person, far less than the usual 500. Girma Tilahun is one of the church's board members. I don't know what the government is going to say if they, people who got vaccinated, if they can come up to the church. I don't know. On top of priests spreading the word, he says the idea of returning to in-person services has also been a huge motivator for many congregants. He's betting that by Easter, St. Mary's can have a more traditional mass, but only if enough people are immunized. If it is fine and dandy, we're going to have our people here at the church. If not, uh, we're going to see what the, the rule is going to be. But uh, either way, it's going to be very, very good. And it's been going very smooth. I mean, people are so thrilled to be getting this. Back in the cafeteria, Representative Nequeta Ricks is filming a video on her phone. She's planning to post testimonials from community members on social media to try and show that vaccines aren't scary. I'm an immigrant myself. I'm very familiar with this community. I know some of the challenges, the barriers and, and, and things that they face. So it was you know, easy to kind of try to create a pop-up clinic. She calls this model a catalyst for improving vaccination rates in communities of color. So the more members of particularly impacted communities that are not getting the vaccine, that start to get it, and the more that we can have testimonials of people who have gotten the vaccine that talk with their friends and their family members and tell them, hey, I've gotten the vaccine, that will start to break down some of those barriers. So yeah, I think it's a good step in the right direction. The slots at this clinic filled up so fast that she's already planning another pop-up clinic in her district over the next few weeks to vaccinate hundreds more people. And she hopes it won't be the last. Matt Bloom, KUNC Aurora. You can find more information about getting a COVID-19 vaccine appointment in Fort Collins, Greeley, or Loveland at our website, KUNC.org.
you're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. It's been more than seven months since police officers in Minneapolis killed George Floyd and set off a national uprising of Black Lives Matter protests. Throughout last summer, protesters gathered all across the U.S. and across northern Colorado in places like Denver, Fort Collins, Boulder, and Greeley. We wanted to check in and hear how activists are reflecting on the protests now and what they think still needs to happen to get closer to racial justice in Colorado. We're joined now by Iris Butler, an independent organizer who spent last summer tending to protesters in Denver as a street medic. Iris, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for having me. Let's start by just going back to what happened last summer. How did you first get involved with the Black Lives Matter protests that were happening in Denver? I have always kind of been involved with Black Lives Matter and protesting in Denver. I am in school for political science and psychology, so I definitely want to learn the dynamics and to see how my community operates. So, of course, I had to go out there when our state needed it. And did you go out just to kind of see what was going on? Did you intend to then volunteer as a a street medic to to care for people at the protests? I went out there just to support and show solidarity. And then as things started getting wild, I took on the role as street medic. What was that experience like? What did you do and, and what did you see as a street medic? I saw a lot. So as a street medic, my personal experience ranged from just helping teenage kids clean out their eyes and help them calm down for a panic attack to there were people that were being shot with rubber bullets or even a real gun from a houseless person that we had to take care and make sure they got the treatment that they needed. Looking back, what do you think the Black Lives Matter movement in Colorado accomplished over the summer? So we passed the SB 217 bill. And that's the police accountability reform bill? Exactly. Um, Those were one of the things that we were hoping that would take off to show other states that they can also hold their police accountable. We're also working on like going to city council a lot and getting that conversation started with defunding and putting the money into the community. And it seems like the legislation that lawmakers passed over the summer will go at least a little way toward being able to hold police accountable. Did it surprise you that that actually passed? It did. And we were very excited and was just thrilled with it. But there's still so much work to be done. We see that as one of the bigger wins, but we still need to encourage people to still create change and still, you know, (laughs) ask for basic human rights. Well, a few things, you know, happened as a result of the protests, um, including what the Colorado legislature did. It sounds like you view this as kind of a first step. What do you still want to accomplish? I would love to accomplish so much. One of the first things that I want to start with is just getting justice for all those people that have died. Elijah McLean, Jesse Cedillo, those are our locals within the state of Colorado. I also would want, you know, defunding or at least getting most of the money that they're getting to go back to the community, focusing on our housing situations, focusing on getting youth out of the street and whatnot. Do you think that Colorado gets closer to racial justice and racial equity from lawmakers passing more legislation? Or 
do you feel it has to happen more like outside the system as we know it? I do think it's with both. I think we need to start creating it more in the law, the government's point of view, and then more with the local and definitely start talking about it. Because I feel like we had the conversation over the summer, but then it just kind of dropped and no one's really talked about it since then. Well, just lastly, we are talking with you in the middle of Black History Month. Just wondering how you're celebrating or if you have thoughts on how you would like to see it celebrated. I'm personally celebrating it is relaxing (laughs) and (laughs) taking time for myself. But how I would like to see it celebrated is letting everyone know the real history of Black history and that there's so much more to Black history than trauma and slavery and all those terrible things that we always hear about every year. I definitely want to take the moment to actually celebrate all those incredible Black folks that really changed our world, whether they were doctors, scientists, or your average Joe. So celebrate instead of talking about the traumatizing things, because we hear so much about it, 365. Iris Butler is an independent organizer. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. The new film Minari has won a host of awards at film festivals around the country, and most recently it received Golden Globe nominations for its entire cast, and also as Best Foreign Language Movie. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, the language of the film is Korean, but it's about the American dream. Ever since its dazzling first feature film Munyarangabo in 2007, writer-director Lee Isaac Chung's understood the value of understatement. He sees the small things that echo beyond themselves, and he respects how life is incremental rather than a series of headlines. In Minari, a Korean-American family moves from California to a remote piece of land in Arkansas. It's the 1980s. Jacob Stephen Yun and his wife Monica Yuri Han, they've taken English names, are experienced chicken sexers. That work has supported them, more or less, but like many immigrants, Jacob wants more. He wants land to grow Korean vegetables for developing Korean communities in the West. With a rented truck and their own car, the family drive through miles of rolling hills in the Ozarks until they come to a field with a long brown trailer sitting on wheels. This is home, Jacob announces. The two young kids think it's fun to climb into the trailer because there are no steps. Jacob suggests they all sleep on the floor in the empty trailer as a kind of celebration. Monica sees no humor in this shell of a building. She looks devastated. In his giddy excitement, Jacob pushes aside some grass in the field to show his wife the dark brown soil. You brought us here for the color of the dirt, she asks. And so their life inches along out here with no phone and no neighbors. The changes can be imperceptible. From scene to scene, furniture appears, pictures show up on the walls, pots in the kitchen. Paul, Will Patton, is now there working with Jacob. Paul's fanatic in his religion and his optimism. Like Jesus, he walks down the road carrying a huge cross. But Paul's kind and loyal in ways that count. When Jacob erupts in frustration, Paul calms him. Things will work out. 
It's actually the picture of life as slow-moving that gives Minari quiet juice. The tornado misses the house. Jacob solves the water problem. Young son David's heart condition improves. A big event is the arrival of Monica's mother. Instead of nurturing, she's rough around the edges. David scolds her to act like a grandmother. Near the stream, she plants Minari, Korean watercress. Director Lee Isaac Chung and his film have been compared to Yasujiro Ozu, the great minimalist Japanese master. But Ozu watched how natural human events shift family life. A grandmother dies. A widower tries to convince his daughter to marry. Ozu made many of his films after World War II, so they show realignment. The subtext is a society reconfiguring itself after the war. Minari's about a family slowly growing into itself after starting fresh. There's no wartime rubble, physical or social, to climb over. And these people are immigrants, so they have drive, persistence, and imagination in ways that people already part of their societies do not have. They don't know what to make of characters like Paul or the boss at the chicken hatchery, but immigrants adapt in ways that never occur to settled Americans. Director Chung does not come to this story from nowhere. He was born and raised in Arkansas by Korean immigrant parents. Minari's not autobiographical, but it obviously comes from Chung's felt experience. It takes a sure hand to make a film based on such small movements and changes. Chung knows this world deeply enough to trust its undulations and rhythms. He said his earlier films were practice for Minari. If that's so, the training worked. Minari's a confident movie that trusts its audience to honor the experience of the characters, even though the movie's not spectacular, even though it's simply human, which is not at all simple. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we'll explore the rich history of black cowboys in the West. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer, and our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Mm-hmm.